This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmoud from Kalua Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. Hi, and I'm Sean. Where are you from? Where are you from, Sean? I'm from Olympia, Washington, and uh, actually still in Olympia, Washington. Very good. Sean, James, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Before we get started, let's get to know you a little bit. So who is Sean James and what does Sean James do? Thank you. Thank you. I'm a father of three boys. I'm a husband, 25 years. I'm a veteran. I like to play guitar and I've been in the Microsoft data center team for 23 years. I just enjoy learning new things. It doesn't matter if the podcast that I'm listening to is about psychology or science or history or the war in Ukraine. Learning new things just makes me feel at peace. Wonderful. For starters, I want to thank you for your service. And I got to tell you that this is the best, best real background that I've seen since COVID. There was an X thing. It was like rate my room. I think that happened during the pandemic where you rated everyone's backgrounds. I think Sean wins. There's no, I feel like I should be listening to chestnuts roasting on the open fire. I think it's just amazing. Yeah. That's probably going to play off of this podcast. Well, let's step back in time a bit. So tell us a little bit about your family. Olympia 25 years ago, Microsoft, how did all come about? I get the question, how do I get into Microsoft or how did you get into Microsoft? I get that question a lot and I dread it because my career was really roundabout way. I never saw myself dealing with computers alone, let alone a data center. So I went to Olympia High School and ironically, my extended family is all in Bellevue and Redmond. They're like five minutes from campus and I'm like an hour away. I ended up an hour away as a kid. My dream was to actually be an electrician. I thought if I could make it to a master electrician someday, that would be a great career. And life's just got a way of setting you where you're fated to be. Where did so, that come from? Were your parents electricians? Or was your father an electrician? Were you like, I just want to twist those wires together and turn on the lights? Yeah. I grew up in a blue collar house. My biological father was a roofer. He lived in Philadelphia, by the way. So every summer, Olympia... White pasty Sean would fly to Philadelphia that may as well be going to a different country because they talk different, they dress different, different customs. I felt like a fish out of water every time I went over there. People were always looking at me strange like an alien. It was really weird. (laughs) It's the same feeling I get if I go to Germany or Denmark or something. It's just, I feel like a fish out of water. So yeah, I grew up in a blue collar home. My dad was a roofer. My stepdad was an electrician and then he became a carpenter later. So he was kind of a jack of all trades. There wasn't a lot of money in the house. And so he fixed everything. It was fascinating. I would walk around the corner and the washer would be torn apart, parts everywhere. And all I would see was circuit boards and he's got his tester and he's testing things. And to a kid, That's like a spaceship in terms of complexity. And that really inspired me. It really inspired me to not be afraid of getting into things that look very technical and sophisticated. And you even see it today on the weekends. I just kind of have this itch to fix things myself rather than sort of like take things in. So my weekends are mostly filled with fiddling around the house, doing things that I could probably outsource to somebody else. I think I'm well, trying to understand this 20 plus year marriage, the, the honey-do <laughs> list. You're, you're like waiting for the honey-do list. That's incredible. 
Yeah, the honeydew list is so long at this point, and I don't think I'm scheduled to die until I'm 200. <laughs> That's very inspiring. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Well, it depends on how you look at it. I have a modern family, and I have half-brothers and stepsisters and all this kind of stuff. So I have four sisters and two brothers, all with different stepmoms and stepdads and all that kind of stuff. And here's the interesting thing. This is how modern family works. And, it, it, and to the old school, I think it's hard for them to understand is they have stepbrothers and sisters that I'm not connected to anyway. And so if I was to draw this out, my family tree would look more like a family shrub. It just, it goes on. People have <laughs> stepbrothers who just goes on. But it, it makes for fascinating family get-togethers. It, it, it's like my brother and you were both related to this person, but we're not related to each other. Yeah. Well, what do you call I mean, it? What, what do you call a double step? It's like a step function. <laughs> this is my step function rather than my squared or something. Right. What do you call multiple steps? You'd have to, he's a different floor. It's like a different floor in the house. I don't know. Yeah. It's great to have a larger family, I guess. I couldn't tell. I was the one and only. Anyhow, so on that question, are any of them in the technology space in any capacity? Are they electrical, mechanical? Are they in any of these professional trades? My brother is in the trades and that's it. The rest of the family are all doing different things. My brother is an electrician. He's really good at it too. So it's this weird feeling to call up my little brother sometimes when I need to ask him about like a code issue or wire size or what type of a, a grounding mechanism. So now you get done with schooling and you want to be an electrician, but I also heard that you went in the service. So tell us and walk us through that story. So you leave school, get into the service, and then how did you end up finding Microsoft? First of all, I always knew I was going in the military. As a kid, I would just be not paying attention to class and I'd be drawing like war scenes with tanks and ships and stuff like that. I, the counselors were worried about me, but I always knew I was going in the military. That theme just fascinated me. The putting your life on the line for things that you believe in, the technology, the struggle between two, four, it, it always fascinated me. And I actually enlisted when I was 17, I was still in high school. You can do that, by the way, you, you can enlist early uh, and there's benefits to that. But can you imagine that a 17, now I think back about, I got a 19 year old and, mm -hmm. and a 16 year old, so he'll be 17 next year to think about him making life decisions. It just blows me away. But the way it works when you enlist is you go take an aptitude test and then the recruiter looks at what you're qualified for based on your test and looks at what jobs are available, puts them all in front of you. So 17 year old kids sitting at this desk with a bunch of jobs for all kinds of jobs from veterinarian to infantry all across the board. I thought I wanted to be a Marine, by the way, I was watching all these Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and I thought that was me. It wasn't me. It was not me at all. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, Sean, this is an adult decision. What's the coolest job you can think of? And I'm like sitting in the chair, the recruiter's looking at me and I said, can you get me on a submarine? And the Marine recruiter laughed. He's like, no, you'd have to talk to the Navy about that. I stood up, I walked out the door. I walked it's two doors down the strip mall. I walked in the Navy. All these Navy recruiters look up at me and I said, can you get me on a submarine? And they said, sit down, son. And I signed up for the submarine fleet that day. Finished high school, we call it a delayed entry program, and then went into boot camp like two months later. And it, it was great because the experience that I got in the submarine fleet turned out to be much more valuable than what I got in school. When I got out of the military three years later and used the GI Bill, 
the training in the military was fantastic. The other thing that I did that I recommend for kids too is do trade school while you're in high school. A lot of school districts offer running start where junior, senior high school, you can start to go take college classes. You can also go to a trade school too. Not a lot of people know that. And this is so key because you could graduate high school with two years experience doing a trade and you could potentially be making close to six figures almost immediately. The demand for tradespeople is, is just unbelievable. So what I learned in, took electronics in trade school and high school, those skills helped me on the submarine fleet. I show up and they're like, oh, I had a solder. Well, you're not peeling potatoes. You're fixing phones. So right off the bat, do they immediately I'm, deploy you on a submarine or is there like some training between the time that no. you sign up? I imagine they don't just throw a submarine and then you're like, okay, now I'm, now I'm under the Pacific. <laughs> well, he went to a boot camp. You go to boot camp, you learn how to run, jump and puke. They throw you in a, in a gas chamber to give you good instincts to put on gas, all the basic training. And then you go to submarine school, they teach you all the basics of submarines. And then How long is that pro that whole process of boot camp to the submarine school? Is that months? Is it a year? Well, uh, it's about five months of basic training and then basic submarine school. That's another five months. And then I show up at the submarine and I'm still 18 at this point. I'm very, very young. So, 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 a year, so a year after you walk into the Navy, you're like, put me on a submarine. A year later, you're going to submarine. Oh, not even a year. Not, not even. even a year. Yeah, yeah. Just under a year. Just under a year, this kid is driving a submarine, driving a submarine. The military is very efficient about taking raw mines and first of all, filtering out people that don't have the aptitude for it. And then just cramming the basic skills to make them useful as soon as possible. And it turns out that driving a submarine is one of the lower level jobs on a submarine. The lower, oh. it, it, it's simple. You just, if your course is. Parallel parking. There's no parallel parking. Zero nine zero. Yeah, parallel parking. <laughs> Much yeah. Just keep depth. Oh, I'm too low. I'm too high. You pull the stick up. You push the stick down. Oh, I'm too far left. Are you? So, so when they pull in, they, do they have a different driver for that? I'll have the more experienced drivers. And then what happens is, first of all, when you get close to land, pilot will come out. These the civilian people, and they know that area. So I was stationed in Bangor, Washington. So the ship would come in through the Strait of Juan de Fuca. So a barge would come out and a pilot would come on board who understands that area better than the back of their hand to help maneuver through there. And then, yeah, they'll have like one of the senior employment working on it. And then when it gets really close to shore, a bunch of tugs will tie and then maneuver it in place. So it's not all very coordinated, very safe. So you were a driver and then also electronics engineer or electrician, probably on the self with soldering connections. Was there anything else? I was everything. Here's a pro tip. So if anybody's listening, who's thinking about going in the Navy, specifically submarine fleet, that's all I know. Somebody has to do the grunt work. Somebody has to wash the dishes, peel the potatoes, do all this really crap work. And there's a term for it in the submarine fleet. You call it cranking because it's 12 hours on, 12 hours off. It's brutally hard work. You're always wet. You're just exhausted. And everybody knows they got to spend their time doing this cranking, but there's actually a way to avoid it. And this is a, a closely held secret, but somebody, an old salt, we call them, told me about it. And that is be useful. And this theme, it's like tattooed on my heart now. Always be useful. So the algorithm works like this. The chief of the boat has to fill all these duty stations, all these watch stations, right? 
and he looks at who's qualified and which ones are open. He starts matching people. And so Chief Nabil might be qualified chief of the boat. He might be qualified battery charge electrician, might be qualified five different duty stations. And he's like, okay, I need someone for chief of the boat. Well, you're not going cranking because he needs you over here. So before you go out to sea, you ask the chief of the boat, hey, what duty stations are you light on? And the chief of the boat will look at his roster and say, oh, I don't have enough sonar technicians. I don't have enough navigation technicians. I don't have enough battery charge electricians. And then you spend the next two or three months getting qualified that job. And then when you go out, you're too valuable to do the crap job. You get put in these other watch stations. And I went my entire tour and I didn't crank once. And the other junior people knew about it. But of course, you, you never snitch like, oh, James has never cranked. The chief of the boat champ hadn't realized that I was using this algorithm. And I just, I remember we're on our cruise back home. It's my last cruise. I'm getting out of the military. We're cruising back home. And one of the junior guys, he's just, he can't take it anymore. So he sort of hints at it to the chief of the boat. And we call him the cob, the chief of the boat, the cob. The cob looks over at me and he's like, James, you, you've cranked before, right? And I'm like, nope, not once. And, and he said, how is that possible? And I explained the algorithm and I explained what I was told. I'll never forget this, you guys. This made a huge impact on me. But he thought about it for a second. He realized he'd been duped, number one. But I saw that flash across his face. And then he said something to the effect of, I'm very proud of you, or this was the golden attitude I wish all my sailors had to just be useful. It's a little That's pro tip. Right. Yeah. It sounds, I mean, it I think that, 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 that could be applied in the civilian world as well. Be bloody useful. No doubt. Be useful. <laughs> is, first of all, we just found the title of the podcast. Second of all, I think James might be the only person to ever leave the military that does not know how to use a fucking potato peeler. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you wash it or something, right? <laughs> Even in the trades. It, well, I entered into IT during the, the dot-com sort of like bust in 2000. And there was so many layoffs and, and that was the theme going through my head at the time too, like be useful, be useful. Um, you can see the writing on the wall. So I leave the military, I get a job as an electrician, I'm loving it. But now I've got some friends that have zero electrical training and they're making more money than me working for the cable company installing cable modems, right? This is when cable modems came out, broadband. Comcast. So where are we? What is this? What are we? Early mid nineties. Mid nineties. Yep. Dot coms are booming. Everybody wants a cable modem. So that was actually my introduction into before then I didn't touch a computer. I'm like, ah, I'm not smart enough to mess with computers. I had to get my father-in-law to help me with anything computer related. But yeah, like I said, my friends were making way more and they didn't have to maintain a license. I had to maintain an electrical license. They did it. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm out of here. So I started at the cable company and got training on how to crack open a case and install a network interface card. And sometimes you'd have to configure the BIOS in certain ways. So it's just kind of like computer boot camp. And then I had heard about this building called a data center that was fired. I never heard of a data center before. So I go and I do a tour and I'm like, wow, this is just like the submarine. For whatever system is in, in place, there's a backup. That's a key mission critical tenet in submarines and in data centers, it turns out. And I love the mission. You have to keep things up at all times in the submarines about national security. But in a data center, it's about things that are potentially even more critical. Those life safety systems that are leaning on, on data. Here's an interesting story. 
do you remember the love bug virus in mm-hmm. 2000? You remember that fiasco? Yeah. There was that one. There was the NIMDA virus. These were like major existential events that, that could have like shut down the world that were just barely saved. And I remember going through those in the data centers where it was like, doesn't matter how many hours you work, doesn't matter what the cause, doesn't matter what you have to do, get these Windows update servers online so people could download the patch so the world doesn't end. It was very, very interesting. Those are very interesting times to go through. So now you're done installing modems. You find an opportunity in Microsoft. And you come in. Uh, Where was that data center that you went into the first time? What was it? Was it a Microsoft data center? Was it Weston? What, what, what was it? It was built by Bubnet in Seattle. That was downtown, wasn't it? South. So South Seattle. Okay. South Seattle. And there was six colos, six computer rooms. And they were like, okay, we're open for business. So I remember classmates.com bought a cage and then Microsoft rented an entire colo and they said, we're going to bring our own technicians. We don't need your technicians. So for like nine months, I'm like the Maytag man in this place. <laughs> there really wasn't any trouble tickets for classmates. So it's like every day coming in and for the SLA, this data center had to maintain 24 seven staff. And I just got that feeling like, Sean, you're not useful. This is danger zone, danger zone. And I, they're going to make you peel potatoes. They're going to make me peel potatoes. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was like, oh man, I'm going to get laid off here. So what I did is I went and I went down to the colo door that Microsoft was in and guys, literally I knocked on the door. I knocked on the door and somebody cracks the door open and they're like, yeah, yeah. What? I'm like, Hey, I'm bored out of my mind. I'm one of the technicians here and I'm here just to respond to any tickets. We never get any tickets. Yeah, I need any help with anything. I'll do any grunt work you want. I'll sweep, whatever. I'll put labels on, like whatever you want to do. I'm here to offer free help. And they're like, yeah. So they let me in. Okay, so it turns out data center techs don't like getting out of their chairs. They would rather just sit in their chair and do whatever configurations are needed. But going out to the freezing ass colo and zip ties, cutting your hands open on zip ties and, and wiring things and taking servers out of the box, deal with all the all styrofoam. Like you go do that. So I went from being the Maytag man to getting to work with the most cutting edge network and server technology, brand new SCSI adapters. They're brand new at the time. And so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do the best job I can. So this I think is any my... one of our listeners knows what SCSI is. Well, I don't think yeah. it's an idea. SCSI, SCSI <laughs> yeah. The better than IDE. Yep. Before SATA and SAS. That's right. All right. Sorry. Yeah, Go ahead. Thick ass cables too. <laughs> thick ass cables. So eventually Bubnik goes bankrupt and Microsoft takes over the building and hires a couple of the people. And I was fortunate enough to be one of those people. And then the rest is history. So you just work your way in. You work your charm, your magic. Right. And you just knocked on the door. Be useful. Be useful. I mean, most of like. You raise and how do I get my, what do I do? What do I, you know, do I know anyone there? He knocked on the damn door. There and you go. We are now talking about, tw- I'm just looking at LinkedIn, 23 years and nine months later, he's still there. Oh, it's unbelievable. Patents and these huge technology demonstrations. And it, it, it's just, yeah, I had no idea. Wonderful. From that one knock on the door. So if you had one to like knock. point to one thing in your life, all of it led up to that one mm-hmm. knock, right? Because you found the algorithm and you want it to be useful and all that. But that one knock, 
Was it that one knock? Like Eminem said, when an opportunity knocks. (laughs) (laughs) That great philosopher, Eminem. That's right. That's right. So to share with us, now you've started as a facilities program manager there, your progression through different careers within Microsoft. What's interesting, when you're in data center operations, there's no win, there's only fail. And so that's a very, that's a very tough organization to be in. Your baseline requirement is 100% uptime. And there's no beating 100% uptime. You can have 110% uptime, right? And so you come in and you work magic and you diving saves and you do everything you can to get a facility that's designed for maybe three nines or four nines or five nines of availability. All of us data center nerds know what that is. But everyone knows your expectation is 100%. And so, like I said, it's really tough. It's like if you do the best job you can, the pattern is quiet. There's no awards or anything. But if you screw up or if something breaks or whatnot, you're doing postmortems and you're explaining things. It's a really tough environment. It's hard to foster growth mindset. But in about 2005 or something like that, Microsoft decided, you know what? We need to start building our own data centers. And it was interesting because we're going to have to build a construction team from zero. And the leaders kind of looked around the, the small data center organization. It was like, okay, who has anything close to construction? Well, Sean used to be an electrician. And this person over here in the military reserves oversees base construction. That's pretty close. So it was like a few of us had very loose ties to construction. Better than others that only deal with code all day, right? And we started the data center development team. And I think there was uh, four or five of us. And that was fascinating because one of my very first projects was a a billion dollar project. And I still remember the approval for the project had to go all the way to Steve Ballmer. It was a very big deal. And the learning curve was super steep. And that was a very fascinating experience because now you're dealing with subcontractors, you're dealing with schedules, critical paths, you got to get the data center up at a certain time. But we all knew that there's a better way to do this. And we started a team that was going to be focused on bringing new things into the data center. And Christian and I started that team, Christian Bellotti. Uh, so yep. all the data center folks out there that know that name. And uh, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. I, I lead a team of innovators that are trying to bring new things into the data center. So I've never met Steve Ballmer. Did you get to meet with him directly during this experience? He was intense, but I really liked him. I, I liked his energy. No one had more energy. No one has more energy than Steve Ballmer. Yeah. There's and, still that video that's floating around where he's yeah, just like totally sweating. Where he's running Microsoft, around. Microsoft, Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. Every company meeting, he would come running out and he had all this energy and the music would be pumping and he'd be running around high-fiving everybody. And, and, and that was a lot of fun. But our department head at the time, this engineer named Sachin Nadella, everybody loved him also. He was very different from Balmer, but he had a lot of heart. When you listened to him, you really felt like he cared about the people, not just the tech, but the people. And we were really happy when he took over the helm. Wonderful. So now you've progressed through the careers and now you're running, or you are the director of energy research at Microsoft. What are some of your core drivers or focuses? I gotta be honest with you. My focus is to have a team that is very healthy from like a production standpoint. So uh, there's a lot of pressure in these tech companies, a lot of pressure in a lot of companies. 
But what the science says is just driving your people very, very hard actually produces very, very poor results. So the tech I work on is fascinating, but what my main focus is, is to build a very, very healthy team. And part of that, I think, is, I mean, we talked about growth mindset. Part of that is learning how to deal with failure. And this has been one of the biggest things that I've learned over the last few years of just how important that is. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting tech with fuel cells and batteries and things of that nature. But actually, when you drill into it, the real secret to, I think, anybody's success is being able to master dealing with failure. Failure is actually a gift. And, and I talked about my, my experience in operations, but man, I learned so much every time something broke or every time you know, there was human error or, or whatnot. If you can get to it, what I've learned is you can learn that, that failure is a gift and learning what to do with those, to cherish it and treating it at the point of learning. This is actually where the secret is. But it, our culture is probably even beyond the culture. It's probably just programmed into our wetware, our software in our head is there's a lot of shame associated with failure. And so that as a manager, especially of an innovation team, that is what I have to face every day is managing misses and failures and things of that nature. And you almost have to create failure as an expectation. If you haven't failed, you haven't tried. First attempt in learning is what we call First it. First attempt in learning. Yeah. Yeah. I have two questions because I know we're running out of time. One is, is it Microsoft, the one that did the data center under the water? Yeah, like, that's so correct. I can't. I, I, I would only this I would guy over imagine. There. I would almost imagine that it would, that would take someone that spent some time under the water to think that that was a good place for a data center. So is there a story about the submarine data center? Yeah. So first of all, Microsoft, every time you submit a patent, you get a granite block. And so somewhere in that stack down there, there's one of those granite blocks that it says submersible data center. That idea came about during lunch. When we're all just being nerds and we're just, yeah, we're just brainstorming about different ways to make the data center environment better. And somebody made the comment, oh, if you could put them underwater, you, you could cool them much more efficiently. And then someone else said, yeah, but you, you can't put sophisticated electronics anywhere near water. And I'm like, oh, wait, yes, you can. <laughs> and that turned into a Think Week paper. So one of the traditions Microsoft used to have is we would just take one week out of the year and get caught up on all those books, write the papers about ideas that have been rattling around in your head. And this idea was actually pretty well received. Here's the interesting thing. When we actually did the two experiments, we did a single rack underwater in California and we did a row in Scotland. We learned a lot about land-based data centers also. So it was a really fascinating kind of a jugular type experiment, but just it branched off into so many other things. As someone that employs data center technicians in a multi-tenant environment, all I'm thinking is how much more efficient like a knock or a data center engineer would be if they had eight arms. So if you can train an octopus, which is really smart, to reboot servers, think of how much more efficient you could be. So I'm all for it. The second. <laughs> Brilliant. Can I, can I get a granite thing? I want a patent uh, octopus Probably, yeah. data center technician. Yeah, so sure. I, I'll, I'll be checking uh, mailboxes. Very James Bond's right. There. Right, right. <laughs> Our name is Octopush. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask what your big red button story is. The big red button. Oh, the big red button red story. Button. Big red button. Yeah. I was having dinner. Got a call from my boss. Everything get is around food. It's either lunch 
or dinner. No, I'm I, I got the I got a brand new baby, our our first son, and I get a call from my boss. It's like eight or nine o'clock at night. Get to the data center, somebody hit the EPO button. And man, this was probably this was a very long time ago. And was this in like 2009, 10 time frame? You're trying to forget remember when your email stopped working. Uh no, no, no. It was actually earlier than that. For those listeners that uh, don't know what that is, emergency power off. The one button you don't no you don't don't press that button. Emergency yeah. power. And it, and it's actually a fire safety feature, fire right. safety requirement code. Because think about it, you've got all yes. These... Because when you press it, you get fired. Yes, <laughs> I love it. That's right. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, you think about it. You go to a room and you got all this energized equipment. And what if there was a fire? Well, you're not going to start discharging fire hoses with a megawatt or, or more of energy. You need some way of turning off all the electricity. And, and, and it's that button is actually for like a fire department to come in and make things safe, slap the button, and then they can start extinguishing the fire. But the tech that was in there working, and this was when AboveNet still owned the data center. But the tech that was in there working went to go do some work on the smoke purge system. And the smoke purge button was the same shape. I think it was a blue button instead of a red button. This person was tired. Colorblind. They had the one colorblind guy. Oh, my God. Went up there. Fixed this. Did maintenance on the smoke burn. As part of his procedure, he needed to turn it on and test it. But he didn't turn anything on. He turned a bunch of things off. God. Well, did he, did it work? Did he get fired? I don't think he works there anymore. I imagine. I imagine. <laughs> yeah. And, and then above net went out of business. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, but then and, it came back. It all learned from that. Work I mean, fine. It's about learning is there was a lot of debate on what actually kills servers. Is it servers being too hot? It turns out in my experience is extreme temperature changes are much harder on servers than extreme t- absolute temperatures. We would find back in 2000, airflow wasn't very good. You'd find some servers that were running super hot, like close to that 40C upper boundary, right? But you're supplying like 50 or you're supplying much colder air. And just going through some of these events, these big outages, the servers that cool down and come back online, it was actually extreme, my experience, extreme temperature changes. No doubt. Consistency is the best medicine for all these things, right? So. They want consistent power and they want consistent temperature. Whether that temperature is 85 degrees Fahrenheit or 63 degrees Fahrenheit, what yeah. you don't want is to create a weather system inside of a server by having hot air meet cold air and then having Al Roker tell you that there's a storm front to Bruin inside, <laughs> inside, inside of your server. I think as we come to a close, I guess the question is your kids, you have three boys, right? You learned all these life lessons. We look at ourselves as the Nomad Futurist Foundation as trying to import wisdom that we learned the hard way onto kids that did not have the benefit of stepping off the submarine into a world that just, you happen to be the pioneer of it because you happen to show up when the internet was coming out, when those cable technicians were on those poles. If it were 50 years earlier or 20 years later, who knows what would have happened? You just right place, right time, Right circumstance, right person, no doubt. But and want to knock know, the door. Uh, right, you it. have to knock on the door, no matter when. Always knock on the door. So, have you imparted that same wisdom of be useful to your kids? One of the things you learn as a parent is it, it don't work that way. Yeah, you, you can't impart anything. The opposite. That might actually have a better. Be useless. Oh, well, in that case, I'm going to go <laughs> to trade school. They have to be in a position to learn. It, it, it really starts with them.
And so that's why it's so important, I think, to put your kids in a variety of different situations and different toys. And if, you, if you've got daughters, let them experiment with Legos and Rector sets. I guess if you have boys. So just put your kids in a bunch of different situations as possible. Some kids are more receptive to verbal th than other. But what I find myself saying to people getting started, getting done with high school or getting close to getting done with high school is I, say, I hear myself saying some of the most common things. The first thing is never grow up. The, the curiosity that you're born with, I think our culture sort of views that as childish or, or immature. That is the biggest lie. That is the biggest lie. You have to stay curious. Don't take yourself too seriously. I think that's another thing that as we get older, that, that's uh, something we take on that, that is an impediment to our growth is we don't allow ourselves to go into certain vulnerable situations because we might think we're above that. We don't want to like tarnish our name or yeah, the, the shame factor. Don't take yourself too seriously. When you do get a job, act like an owner. Pick up trash. If something doesn't make sense, sort of like raise it. And when you're younger, don't feel bad if you find yourself job hopping or switching degrees and stuff like that. The fact is your interests between 17 and 25 are going to change. Your brain is still changing, right? And the people that you like, you might realize you don't like them anymore. The job interests, you think you're going to be a electrical engineer or a botanist or whatever, your brain might change. You might not be into that anymore. Just be kind to yourself, allow yourself to switch and don't view it as a bad thing. Very well said. We have a philosophy, it's experiences, exposure, and education are the three critical elements. And that really, really connects well with what you just said. You should be a Nomad Futures ambassador for all of what I know. Consider me at your service. There's Normal. a job peeling potatoes in the Nomad Futures Foundation. Uh, thing, so we might have to get you some training. Uh, so Nomad Futures Bootcamp starts in 0500. Oh my gosh. That was GI Phil right there. Yeah, Phil. <laughs> John, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Your story is absolutely phenomenal and love it, every bit of it. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for everything that you do for the industry, particularly with the sustainable initiative that you're leading at Microsoft. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for the time to chat with you guys. Thank you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we will all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. At Nomad Futures, we are confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.org. And thank you for listening and subscribing, as well as your continued support.